0: Aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner. Our topic this week is mindfulness. This is something you hear about from time to time in personal development and spiritual growth, but the topic is deep enough, it's challenging enough, that it often gets glossed over or even sidestepped altogether. It is a challenging idea, uh, that is, uh, or a challenging practice uh, to learn to be more mindful, and yet it uh, certainly is worth the effort because it opens us up to higher brain functions and uh, broad new horizons when it comes to understanding yourself, why you do the things you do, and moreover, why you think and feel the way you think and feel. uh, Mindfulness allows you to understand your motives, your deeper motives, and to sort of get outside yourself to detach a little bit and see yourself more objectively and uh, make better choices, and better judgments about who you are. So I'm going to do my best to keep it simple, to keep it basic, and uh, you know I'm going to sort of walk a balance. I don't want to um, talk down to anybody. Uh, I know we have some very, very bright people, very advanced people that listen to this program live or or, or tune into the podcast on demand. And uh, at the same time, I don't want to be so lofty and. And over the top that if you're new to the concept, you get lost. We'll we'll, we'll try to walk a line so that uh, we can introduce the concept and and still address some of the more interesting ramifications and and the implications of being more mindful. I did a similar program last November. I'm not sure the date. I think it was. November 9th, was that it? Early November of last year, 2009. And I called it equanimity. Same thing, really. The word equanimity and the word mindful or mindfulness. Equanimity is interesting because of the way it translates literally. Equa meaning equal, balanced, or centered. And nimity or animity. Uh, taken from anima and animus, which are qualities of the soul, so to speak, spiritual qualities that go beyond gender um, and beyond persona. So equanimity is a balanced soul. That would be one who is balanced in that you're not so caught up in the material world that you lose sight of your progress as a spiritual being, an energy being, or a soul, so to speak. Nor are you out of balance in the other direction, where you are so spiritual that uh, you're not much good to us out here in the world. You don't show up, you don't do the things you say you're going to do, you don't know what time it is or what day it is, uh, because you're off... uh, seeking spiritual goals the the challenge always to the human as he or she becomes more and more conscious is to find that balance and and to stay centered to walk that balanced uh path between spiritual and material concerns one of my favorite ways to say it is i believe a sufi saying I've Googled it a half a dozen times in the last few years, and everybody seems to think it's in the New Testament, but nobody can find it. The phrase, to be in the world, but not of it. Near as I can tell, that's translated from, um, well, what would it be if not Arabic, Farsi, or some Middle Eastern language. It's a, a mystical concept in Islam. Again, a Sufi concept, uh, to be in the world, but not of it. Very nicely said. Um, Nice turn of the phrase. We have to do both. We have to be in the world. We have to deal with our daily life and affairs, with the challenges of, of fear, basically, born of this experience we have in the world of being separated from each other and boy that's the root of it all right there separation fear from the moment we're born and pushed out into the world it's a scary frightening and lonely place and all of our fears can be traced to this deep spiritual alienation that comes from finding ourselves suddenly in these um, in these physical bodies uh, spending the rest of our lives reaching out, trying to connect, trying to hold a hand or get a hug or, or 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 just be reassured that things are going to be okay. And uh, so, mindfulness, mindfulness or equanimity, also at the same time includes a responsibility to um, turn in the other direction and look at oneself spiritually uh, the more substantial essence of who we are over and above the bodies that we inherit is uh, a quality of love that eliminates and extinguishes fear in much the same way that understanding eliminates ignorance this is not merely the emotion of love That we're talking about in a spiritual sense. This is capital L, if you will, capital L love, which is a synonym for wisdom, for truth, for consciousness, for yourself as an eternal spiritual essence standing not only in form, but above and free of form. And so. Uh, you're both. You've got a foot in both worlds. You, just as Christ was often called the Son of God and the Son of Man, each of us is in the same way the Son of Spirits or the daughter of Spirit and the Son and daughter of the offspring of the material world. We are born of both, Spirit as soul and the material world as a persona, an, an, an ego. And these two parts of self clash. This is the confusion we see in Christianity around the idea of sinner. Uh, A few classes in psychology and mental health will give you a much better uh, understanding, I I really believe a healthier understanding of what the church is talking about as a sinner. Um, Sin literally means to miss the mark. It's sort of a oops, or nice try, or, you know, it doesn't mean that you're deliberately ignoring and denying the will of God and deliberately doing things, you know, are bad and going to hurt other people. Uh, Sin literally means to miss the mark, to miss the bullseye, and an opportunity uh, to learn. But it's a very harsh term, and especially in the last... 200 years of christianity since um, new definitions of the apocalypse and the evangelical born-again movement um, a rapture new definitions of what that means in the coming or the final days all of this is relatively new 150 to 200 years old and it really flies in the face of the ageless wisdom of the ancient teachings Um, that they go back to the early days of Christianity and before. Again, ageless wisdom really refers to the philosophies of the world, some of them ancient, all of them timeless or ageless, that have stood the test of time, many predating the modern prophets, um, even Moses predating Moses, uh, Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, Uh, Lao Tzu, Confucius, uh, Patanjali, who wrote the Yoga Sutras, uh, these are people that lived real lives, but there's this knowledge that's extant that existed before the prophets, before the coming of the prophets, that's so old and so ancient, uh, it's hard to put your finger on where it comes from. one lineage, certainly uh, in the Hebrew tribe, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Moses, however, was raised, you'll remember, by Egyptians. So that lineage really goes to Hermes Trismegistus, um, known simply as Hermes in the Greek pantheon, as um, Mercury in the Roman pantheon, you know, the fellow with the little wings on his shoes and the little wings on his cap. And, he carries the caduceus with the wings at the top of the wand. Um, again, a member of both the Greek and Roman pantheon of the gods, but historically believed to be a real person. Hermes, Mercurius, Trismegistus, and, and perhaps even a lineage, um, as many as a dozen teachers, according to scholars like Manly P. Hall. Same thing for Lao Tzu, that could be one person, for the name translates the sage, as what Lao Tzu means, so it could have been one guy about 500 BC that compiled the Tao Te Ching and put together Taoism, the old Chinese philosophy, but it could be a lineage, it often is suggested that Lao Tzu really is a lineage, like Hermes, This is the really old stuff. And Tibetan Buddhism, of course, really, this is the ancient stuff. And a thread running through it all is this idea of waking up from a kind of sleep or material world induced hypnosis that keeps most of us asleep and fixated on the physical world uh, pretty much to the exclusion of anything spiritual or paranormal or psychic or Uh, otherworldly we're taught to discount all of these things to discount our non-physical perceptions and to be not in the world but Not so much as the saying goes, in the world, but not of it. But the counsel we get, especially in the West, is to be totally in the world, and totally of the world, and to dismiss from your mind any intuitive thoughts, any subtle senses or sensations that cannot be accounted for through logic and through reasoning, Um, This is not an entirely bad thing, this age of enlightenment um, that can be traced back to the Renaissance and some would go back to maybe 1,000 A.D. or 1,100 A.D. with the coming of universities and and, um, uh, really the end of the Dark Ages, the first 1,000 years when Europe was pretty much ruled by the church with an iron fist. Those were pretty desperate times. And while the rest of the world was prospering and flowering, the oppressive nature of the church, the crusades, the inquisitions, the witch burnings—I was going to say the book burnings—but there, were <laughs> there were no printing presses uh, a thousand years ago. So that comes—that uh, comes later. So mindfulness is a balance between the two worlds, don't you see? Equanimity, a centering or a balance, where you, again, are in the world but not of it, where you can turn your attention to the physical senses. But you can also turn your attention away from the physical senses. And mindfully or intuitively detach not only from the separated objects and forms of the material world, but from those objects and forms that we don't think of as being physical things, but nevertheless they are. And that would be thoughts and feelings. You see, in metaphysics it's understood that thoughts are things. They are forms. They they don't come in boxes. They're not wrapped in pretty paper with ribbons on them. Uh, you won't see them stockpiled on the shelf at the hardware store. But nevertheless, thoughts are things. And in many ways, it's our thoughts that separate us. You might think think that that thoughts bring us together. They really don't. The awareness that comes from a thinking process or The awareness that comes from emotional intelligence can bring us together, but the form that is the thought or the belief system or the form that is the emotion can actually stand between us. This is why there's so much uh, arguing, so much disagreement, why it leads to hostility and uh, out of uh, the fear comes uh, anger and and defensiveness, um, because the very nature of our thoughts is often to divide us rather than to bring us together. Same thing with emotions. These are forms. The, The old mystics used to say you cannot think your way to God for the very thought forms or belief systems that you would use to construct a path or a stairway toward a perception of the Most High or Most Divine would eventually stand between you and union with the ultimate source, which is non-physical, which is formless. Don't you see? The approach has to be made in a formless fashion. So, The wisdom in meditation and contemplation and other forms of introspection is a wisdom that says close your eyes, breathe deeply so as to feel very safe and relaxed, train the brain to believe that at least for now you are in no danger. And so you can turn away from physical sense and sensation. Begin to watch your breathing, for example, as a single point of awareness. And then perhaps to look at the gap between the thoughts. Look at what your mind is doing between this thought and the next thought. And you'll see that it's not doing anything. And yet you exist. Imagine, you might say, well, that's mindless. If you're not thinking of anything, that's mindlessness. No, actually, when you're not thinking of anything, that's mindfulness. And that's your first paradox of the day. In order for the mind to be full, in order for your heart to be full we really have to be more balanced we have to turn away from the illusions from the distortions from the temporary uh, finiteness and uh, impermanence of the physical world to see what remains when we let go of all these physical forms. Not just our attachment to material possessions. That's one of our main reactions or responses to feeling alone in a physical world of form is clutching or grabbing at stuff. It starts out as a little baby. wants the red ribbon. Doesn't know why it wants a red ribbon. It's just exploring. It wants to see red. It wants to rub it rub the red ribbon on its body and see how it feels. It wants to taste red, so the baby will put the red ribbon in its mouth and and smell the smells, especially as the red ribbon gets wet from being in the baby's mouth, and it immerses itself in the experience of red ribbonness well and so we grow and mature and become increasingly immersed in red ribbonness right in a world of forms and shapes that of course goes beyond the red ribbon soon to the television maybe to a book if you're fortunate enough to be raised in a household that has books you know usually if children don't read well it's because they don't read As children, they don't have books in the house. Look around your home. Even if you don't have children, you ought to have books. If there's no books in your house, well, I can't imagine anybody listening to this program not having books in their house. So I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. But nevertheless, that has to be balanced with an idea that there is something spiritual that is not finite, uh, that is not mortal, uh, that is uh, not impermanent. Something, in other words, that is eternal and infinite and immortal. There's got to be something of truth that lasts. And uh, whatever that is, The world of form, this temporal world where everything is impermanent, everything is in flux, it's all changing and dancing and spinning and flashing on and off and moving around and never the same two seconds in a row. There's not much truth in a world that's always changing. Truth has to be found, real truth, not relative truth, but absolute truth as we discussed last week, has to be found outside of this physical world of form. The the, the substantial worlds are not physical, they're spiritual. The the, the spiritual world is the substantial world. The physical world is non-substantial because it's always changing. It, It doesn't appear that way because of our bias. Most people will tell you the physical world is a substantial world because i can touch things and hold them i can pick up this separated object and then i can set it down over here and as an object i've moved an object and how much more real can that be well again you moved it <laughs> you moved an object and now it's different nothing lasts so part of the wisdom and this extends itself into religion in places but it's a much more solid understanding in uh, esoteric philosophy and what's often known as the perennial philosophy or the ageless wisdom that that which is substantial is really an energy not a form okay Uh, I I want to keep repeating this, but then I I would just keep repeating this. So get this down. There's only two elements here. And it's just the opposite of what you've been trained to think. The substantial is the invisible and the unseen, but eternal and infinite, unchanging, unmoving. Um, The world of appearances, of shapes and sizes and forms and colors Uh, would be the non-substantial, because it's always in flux. It's never the same twice. A mindful person knows that. A mindful person is a person that can close their eyes and indeed makes it a point on a daily basis to set aside time, usually early in the day, so that the benefits are experienced throughout the day to balance yourself between spirit and matter, to be the soul. that is isn't so spiritual that it doesn't really exist in the world and can't be relied on, never knows what time it is, and shows up late for appointments, and at all. Uh, but also even more common, out of balance in the other direction, so into the physical and material world that has no sense of itself as a spiritual being and the higher qualities, uh, the motives and identities that go with that. So a daily meditation, a morning meditation, is a wonderful opportunity to become mindful to use equanimity, to seek equanimity or balance between spirit and matter, between the substantial and the non-substantial, that you might exist in both worlds, the spiritual world of energy and the material world of form and shape and size. So mindfulness is a detachment, it's a letting go that we do, In meditation, or contemplation, some sort of introspective exercise, where you essentially take one step back, where you, in a sense, zoom out, Um, you sort of get outside of yourself. This is the ultimate in out-of-the-box thinking. You get out of the box. You get out of your own head. Climb out of your body, which the imagination facilitates with great joy and ease, actually. And allow yourself to look at yourself from this detached and mindful place. Again, this is not detachment in order to dissociate with the egoic self or the persona, the worldly or physical self. You're still associated with that self, that material self of form. It's a detachment, not a dissociation, to see the bigger picture. The great German word for the big picture was simply Gestalt, even a form of psychotherapy called Gestalt therapy. Where you look at the bigger picture. You, you look at the overarching context of the situation you find yourself in. You don't just try to figure out the other person. Usually, <laughs> when we're in a conflict, we obsess because of the nature of the brain and the way it's hardwired with fight or flight. We obsess on figuring out the other person or the group or the circumstance, or the event that is at odds with us, that seems to be opposing us, or challenging us, that is somehow creating, uh, by all appearances, some sort of adversity in our lives. So if we obsess on the enemy, know the enemy, then we'll understand why they made us feel the way they made us feel, and why they forced us to think the way we think and made us be um, the way we are. Uh, it's just so common for people to excuse their behavior by saying, well, you made me feel that way. You made me hit you. Right? I didn't want to be angry at you, but you made me do it. Uh, the famous uh, <laughs> those famous routines in the Was it the late 60s and early 70s by the comedian Flip Wilson? If you go back to those days, uh, you may remember the devil made me do it. That was his excuse. No matter what he said or what he did, the devil made him do it, right? Well, silly as that is, most people continue to do the same thing, only they may not blame the devil, they'll just blame somebody else. Well, I'm angry because you made me angry and it's all your fault. And then I had to hit you, you know. Um, It's like completely irresponsible. It's absolutely the wrong direction to be moving in. We want to move toward freedom, and that means personal responsibility. It's not self-blame so much as abandoning blame altogether. Blame of others and blame of self to accept responsibility to say I have the ability to choose a response. The great definition of responsibility, I have the ability to choose my response. Most people are afraid of responsibility. They see it as a burden. Oh no, now it's all my fault. I'm to blame. No, (laughs) that's not it at all. It's not about going from blaming others to blaming yourself. Just get rid of the idea of blame altogether and take responsibility. This is part of the larger idea of not judging, that the the student of mindfulness is one who uses a meditation or contemplative exercise with eyes closed to still the body and calm the emotional nature and then quiet the mind. To get to a place where you can observe yourself and your life without judgment. Now what does that mean? This is a challenge, maybe the first challenge of mindfulness to those who seek it. It doesn't mean you'll never judge again. That doesn't mean stop judging altogether. Sometimes you have to judge. Uh, the example I use a lot is the uh, the orange light, the traffic light. You come into the intersection just as the light turns orange, and you have to decide: Do I keep going, or do I slam on the brakes and risk being rear-ended? What do I do? Where am I? What exactly is the law? Oh my God! The traffic light just turned orange. I mean, they have to make a judgment. Or uh, another one we use a lot in class is, uh, uh, you know, just because you want to be non-judgmental, doesn't mean you overlook the fact that your neighbor, a known, registered sex offender and pedophile, would not be the best person to hire. If you're looking for a babysitter, you you may want to judge, make a judgment that the the, the convicted pedophile with a history uh, really would not be the first person or that <laughs> you're going to choose to babysit. You're not going to choose this person to babysit at all, or to coach the little league team, um, and that is a judgment and people say well wait a minute all you spiritual people are saying we shouldn't judge what is that about well again you you can't prove a rule by its exceptions these are exceptions these are aberrations if you will these are you know extreme examples of when you're going to have to judge the idea is to minimize it and to do your best to really see life in front of you day by day, moment by moment, without having to categorize and pigeonhole everything as good or bad, right or wrong, with me or against me. That's what we mean by not judging. You know, uh, trying to think of new examples I haven't used, sometimes I just go back to the same example. There's some vegetable that you decided when you're seven years old that you don't like, and now you're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, and you still don't eat that vegetable. And maybe you haven't tasted that vegetable since you were six years old and decided you don't like it, whatever it is. Maybe it's lima Lima beans or carrots or broccoli or spinach or whatever. You don't know. Why don't you try it again? Maybe your mother was giving you canned vegetables and you didn't know. Or, uh, you know, beginning after World War II, as early as the early 1950s, food in the grocery store began to change as... The nature of the farm changed from the family farm to the corporate farm, from being largely organic and natural food to being blasted with petroleum-based fertilizers, petroleum-based herbicides, and petroleum-based insecticides, all of which are toxic and poison. It was shortly after World War II that we began to spray our food with poison. That's a pretty stupid thing to do, and you say, "Yeah, but we got to get those bugs." No, you don't, not really, right? And you don't have to breed a tomato so that it can withstand being trucked to market in a giant semi truck under the weight of, you know, tons of other tomatoes. You ever grow a tomato at home? You know, they're rather fragile and delicate things with a, a short shelf life then so you can see the motives changing right and yet we suffer from a judgment that we made as children i don't like tomatoes truth is you've probably never had one in your life or i don't like carrots you mean when you were six you didn't like carrots how do you know see and this is true for politics and religion most people get their politics and religion not through any kind of critical examination of the facts not through any comparison of multiple disciplines uh, not through rigorous study but because they're born into it you know you're born in america you're likely to be a christian perhaps a jew there's a chance you could be a Muslim hell there's a chance you could be born in america as a as a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Taoist or anything else but it's pretty pretty likely that if you're born in america you're gonna you're gonna be a Christian if you're born in India you're gonna be a Hindu you know if you're born in uh, Japan or China you could be uh, a Buddhist, you could be a Shintoist, a Jain, uh, a Taoist in China, or a Confucian. It has more to do with where you're born than anything else. Right? And then to be willing to go to war, to call a jihad or a crusade a war holy, to make war holy, that's pretty blasphemous. That's rather heretical, Right? But religious people are able to do that all the time—to invoke the name of God to justify the slaughter of God's children and the plundering of its creation. <laughs> God wanted me to kill all these people, and even the idea of 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 hell or some eternal damnation flies in the face of of anything uh, spiritual or even religious, religios, religiosity. If you really take a step back, detach, and with equanimity equanimity and mindfulness, take a look at the truth of things. The idea that Christ would be anti gay, for example, you read the New Testament, you could not possibly come up with that idea. You read a couple of passages in the old testament about rabbis preparing for ceremony in leviticus you can see where you know there's a couple of references there that are homophobic anti-gay if you will but you know christ may have been gay himself he didn't did he marry Say you're not supposed to talk like that but hung out with a bunch of guys it's perfectly conceivable at any rate i think it's more likely he was dating mary through all of this and perhaps even married mary as the novel da vinci code suggests that's based on uh, a lot of evidence there was a lot of a lot of read holy blood holy grail some very well documented evidence that christ and mary were scenes that women were revered and mary magdalene was actually one of the apostles you, you see her at the Last Supper in, in Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. You see this woman, but you have to look carefully because most of the apostles had long hair and wore robes and not easy to distinguish always the men from the women. <laughs> You'll see this long-haired guy with no beard that pretty clearly is a woman. That's Mary. That, He's one of the disciples. Shh! not supposed to say that. The Church will tell you that uh, well, there's the Virgin Mary, I'm talking about Mary Magdalene, who the Church turned into a prostitute, even though there's nothing in any of the uh, New Testament uh, about that. They just made that stuff up. So, what I'm saying is that we can have a mindful experience of examining these texts from a detached place Without judgment, without preconceived notions, without the dichotomies of everything being either all good or all bad, everything being either all right or all wrong, uh, uh, in fact, a good place to begin your, your work in mindfulness is to look at the idea of relative truth. We talked about this last week or was it the week before, that not all truth is absolute. Yet there are many people who have been strongly indoctrinated into religion or into politics or some other field where they believe only in absolutes, that everything is absolutely right or absolutely wrong and there's no middle ground, right? Right? And if you disagree with them in any way, you are absolutely wrong, because, of course, they have to be absolutely right. Even in ridiculous things, like who's the better football team, who's the better baseball team, and they argue with you from a place of absolutes. They can't seem to get off the idea of absolute truth and consider the relative nature of truth, that... It may be true that I don't like lima beans, but I can't say, therefore, lima beans are a horrible food. You may love them. So the relative truth is you think they're delicious. I think they're horrible. There is no absolute truth. This is difficult for people in general and in and of itself, a great reason to work on mindfulness. To be less judgmental and less obsessed by the idea of truth having to be absolute. This would be a good place to begin your experiments, your contemplation and reflection, your introspection, your meditation of mindful detachment. And we'll do it here today. I'll I'll give you a sense of how to do this. To breathe, to relax, to close your eyes, to go into a meditative level, and then let go of something you've been holding on to. A belief system, an identity. This is not just letting go of material things. This is letting go of forms like thoughts and feelings. That you've been holding on to and wearing like clothing or using like a mask or a costume to represent yourself you may have a great deal of your identity invested in these belief systems that you clutch you seize and hold on to with such great energy fearing that they might be ripped away and expose the real you when Dropping them to expose the real you is the best thing you could possibly do. Use mindfulness initially to stop judging or to reduce the tendency to see everything as right or wrong, good or bad, and further, absolutely right, or absolutely wrong, no middle ground, absolutely good, or absolutely bad, no middle ground. And then you'll be ready to step up to higher brain functioning. Two other things that the ego does that we can become mindful of and choose to release, besides judgment, is control and the need for acceptance and approval. Control, because we always try to control the stimulus. It just doesn't occur to us to control our response. We want to control other people, rather than control the way we deal with other people. The example I often use here in a forgive me again, I think it really does bear repeating this old uh, eastern axiom. Uh, Trying to remember who gets credit for this. One of my listeners mentioned this the other day. I used to credit um, Maharshi, Ramana, Ramana Maharshi. And then this guy said, oh no, it's much older than that. But now I've forgotten who gets credit for coming up with this but it's hundreds of years old and it's pretty well known in the East and not very well known in the West the idea that you could cover the world with leather to avoid injuring your feet but wouldn't it be simpler just to wear shoes Tolstoy says anytime you think of changing the world consider changing yourself as a better approach to changing the world. Why change the whole world so that you benefit when you could much more easily change yourself and make that a contribution to the world? Well, because it's risky, it's scary. I'd rather change the world. I'd rather point my finger out and say, You are responsible for the world, you are the reason it's bad, and you have to change to make it good, you see. Um, it's just not that simple. It's easy to blame BP, for example, and to get really angry at their criminal negligence. They're obvious. It's not too soon. If you've done the research in the last few uh, weeks and, and months now, Um uh, Pretty obvious that they've been criminally negligent in a variety of areas, that there's a pattern here. This has happened before to them, and it's going to happen again. But don't we have a responsibility? Don't we have a responsibility in the wake of this to decide how we feel and demand of our government better regulation, more appropriate regulation? You know, you don't just turn energy policy over to the energy companies the way Bush and Cheney did, but they're both oil men. So I don't know what we expected putting a couple of oil executives in the White House. (laughs) It's pretty clear whose interests they're going to represent. But we have a responsibility, a freedom, an opportunity to see how we can change ourselves. And that's where... Appropriate control comes in. Stop trying to control what's done to you and instead control perception and response if you want to control something. Be response-able for your point of view, for your understanding, for the depth and breadth of your understanding. And do it again from a balanced, centered, detached, and mindful place to get the most information that you can about it, okay, so we have judgment that's one of the ego's primary jobs. It's always judging it's trying to control these are both forms of attachment, and thirdly, this need, this constant need for approval and acceptance uh this is these three things are essentially what the ego does, and to become mindful of it is to put it into balance, to keep it into check, to use it appropriately. As you come to understand who you are, you will no longer need approval or acceptance. You will discover humility. And you just don't need to be superior. You don't need to be better than other people because you're different from. If you understood your uniqueness, you would know there's nobody for you to compete with. And there is no limit upon the amount of love and friendship and acceptance that's available in the world. Just because somebody is your friend and they are also someone else's friend doesn't diminish your friendship unless you are not mindful living only in a world of form, and believe that love is a quantity, another form, in limited supply, only so much to go around. So I don't want you being interested in anybody else, caring about anybody else, partying with anybody else. This jealousy, this envy, You're mine. I tell you, don't you see how much I love you? That's not love. <laughs> that's fear don't you see how frightened I am of losing this love when in fact a mindful individual knows that love is the only thing that exists that's everywhere equally present there is much more love here than you could even stand if, if you only were open to it there is certainly no shortage of it but you have to become mindful in order to understand that to take that one step back, to detach, to breathe, to feel safe, to let go, to get outside of the box, outside of your brain, and walk around yourself and see your existence from a variety of different perspectives gives you a, a level of awareness that will allow you to manage the tendency of the ego to judge, to seek control, and to seek approval, acceptance, and love. You can stop judging, stop petitioning for control, and stop demanding that everybody approve of you and love you and accept you. And just, you know, the the more you know the truth of who you are, the less it matters what other people think. So, that need for acceptance and that need to control them and even the need to judge them falls away. Now that's some kind of freedom. That's real liberation. Which is why democracy is a spiritual idea ultimately. So there's a lot here, but that's a nice little overview for you. And that brings us pretty much to the top of the hour, so Let's go to the questions, either by text or by telephone. We'll see who's on the telephone. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment by phone, press star 2 on your telephone touchpad and we'll come back and look at those in a minute. And if uh, instead you're on the web and uh, you just want to ask your question or make a comment by text, you can do that with the Box in front of you. It's just to the left side of the screen. And if you don't see it, there's a button that says Ask a Question uh, that'll bring it up for you. And just be sure and hit Submit after you put in your name and your address. And we'll see who's here today and how everybody's doing. Carol Postel in La Habra is with us. She says, Happy Father's Day, Michael. And hello to Doreen. Did I say that at the top of the show? Happy Father's Day. I know I mentioned it before I started the uh, the recorder for the podcast, in any event. Um, like I said on Mother's Day, you may not be a dad, but everybody has a dad. So, Happy Father's Day. I hope your father was in your life and, in a, and uh, was in your life in an important kind of a way. It's a great day today. In that regard, Lorelai Hatch in Tucson says, Aloha, Michael. She says, I took your advice and made the jump to general manager GM, she says. It could be grandmaster, but <laughs> I think it's general manager. And I have to say, I'm loving it. The extra money is great, but the best part is the new challenge. I was comfortable in my previous position, but was finding it a somewhat boring. And now I find myself being excited by going to work and am growing in leaps and bounds in the process. Fear truly is excitement in disguise. Thanks a lot Michael for all your wisdom and happy Father's Day. You've been a spiritual father to me and to many others. Uh, Peace and love to you and Doreen. Aloha Lorelai. Thank you Lorelai. I appreciate that. In Irvine, Robert Fiegel says, Aloha Michael. I find it so difficult to stay in the moment. I catch myself focusing on my past and worrying about the future. What technique can you rep, uh, recommend to stay aware of the moment have a magical week of peace? Well, the reason we go to the past and the future is that we're reacting or responding, Robert, to fear and anxiety. And... You know, we can look at the past with regret and resentment as if more and more looking is going to remove or allow us to release some of that disturbing negative emotions from the past. We can look to the future similarly to see if we can prevent it from happening again. But You know, the only thing that's real, of course, is the now. So the now feels risky. And it just seems safer somehow to learn from the past and to plan the future. Now, clearly there are times to learn from the past. And yes, there are times we need to plan the future. But we need to do both of those activities from the present moment. And to be here now, whether a great book by Baba Ram Dass in the late 60s, or Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about the present moment, its core Eastern philosophy, to talk about the fact that there ultimately is no time, there is just this unfolding rhythm. Think of time as like a drum circle. Everybody's playing drums and there's a rhythm to it. There's a definite rhythm to time. But there's no past or future in the drum circle. What you hear is the present moment. I think the best short answer I can give you, Robert, is you want to come back to the now. To the moment of things. Watch your breath. This is classically what teachers of Eastern philosophy, yoga, uh, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and the other spin-offs in Eastern philosophy and religion will teach the single-pointedness or single-mindedness of focusing on your breath and watching yourself breathe. It's obviously a, a very effective way to bring yourself into the present moment. What's happening right now? Well I'm inhaling, you know. What's happening now? Well I'm holding my breath before I exhale. What's happening now? I'm exhaling. What's happening now? I'm still exhaling. <laughs> What's happening now? Nothing. I stopped exhaling. Good. What's happening now? Oh, I'm beginning to inhale. Hey, even if you just did that for a few moments, or a couple of seconds, just to bring yourself back into the reality of the moment, uh, it's a very effective technique. It's almost universal technique. So that's the short answer, Robert, to getting back into the present moment, is breath. Or fixing your attention on anything at all, really. Um, hold on a sec here let me find the cough button um, there is a buddhist practice called beginner's mind where you pick up an object and you can do this right now if you'd like pick up an object on the desk in front of you could be anything could be uh, let's see what have I got here could be um I have some nasal spray. Here I have eye drops. I hope I don't get those two confused. Here I have a pen, a pair of scissors, a USB cord. Here's an iPod cord. I, I could pick up any one of these. Here's a pencil. This would be the practice. Pick up any one of these familiar objects and begin to look at it as if you've never seen it before, with beginner's mind, as if you know nothing about pencils. And you might notice first the taper of the pencil at the business end. You see where the yellow paint is scraped away in these scallops. You notice the pencil is not round. It actually has eight sides or maybe it's five. Uh, I don't have a pencil actually. (laughs) I'm just sort of winging it. But you look at the wood and then the lead, and you may even notice that this is two pieces of wood that have been glued together, and now you know how they got the lead inside. Or you look at the other end and this little pink eraser, and you wonder what that is and what that's made out of and how it's attached to the end of the pencil with this colorful little brass fitting that's been crimped and then you look at what's written on the pencil and who made it and here's a number that indicates the hardness of the lead you could spend an hour looking at that pencil as if you've never seen it before and yet we use pencils all of our lives right? now do that with something else some other simple object, and that will prepare you to do a similar exercise of mindfulness with something bigger in your life, like, why do I argue with my spouse in this way? What is the pattern here? And how can I change the pattern without needing to control or educate or even blame my partner, even though I think you know, you may think, you may believe in your heart of hearts that they're causing it, they're doing it. But the challenge is, how do you change you? How do you adapt to the situation? How could you not get involved or or sidestep the situation or say something that acknowledges the position of the person who disagrees with you that that really satisfies and placates? Then you can continue to use beginner's mind in a variety of areas. Anytime there's a problem, you know. Uh, I remember fixing cars as a teenager. Uh, not only because it's fun, but because as a teenager you have no money and you're pretty much driving junkers anyway, so you want to fix the car, and you're going to have to do it yourself. Well. In the simplest way, I suppose that people who fix cars fall into roughly two categories. Uh, Those people that don't know what they're doing and become increasingly frustrated, but they never stop. They're just banging away under the hood, pulling wires and torquing bolts and nuts with their wrenches and hitting things with their hammers and, you know a few curses here and a few obscenities over there and uh, some exasperated uh, shouts and, but they just keep going versus a person who is a little more mindful and they're working away and then they get to a point where they don't know what they're doing and their response is very different they put their tools down And they go over and uh, find a chair to sit on, or a box, or they go sit on the porch. And they take a breath, maybe get a nice cold drink if it's a hot day, and they think it through. They go to a mindful place with a meditation, a contemplation, introspection, again, whatever you want to call it, and think it through. In a couple of ways, not only the thinking it through of applying logic and reasoning, but also thinking it through in terms of standing open and receptive to little creative bursts of awareness, little aha, those little spontaneous, well, what is an aha? It's Eureka Illumination. It's uh, an experience of light that comes in and allows you to see something that's been there all along in your head, in your brain, waiting to be recognized, but you were too stressed and pushing too hard and thinking 18 different thoughts at once and grabbing at straws, and you overlooked the now obvious solution. But if you would sit down and use mindfulness in a situation like this, you might say, well, I thought mindfulness was not judging. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And not controlling. Uh-huh. And not needing approval. Well, that's sort of a moot point here. If you're dealing with a car, it's not going to approve of you. Yeah, it's sitting passively and allowing your attention To focus on one thing at a time. And to rest quietly. You see. In this case, on what's wrong with my car? I tried this, this, and this. And this doesn't work. and, And now I don't know where to go. I wonder where to go next. And you just sit quietly. That's not generally taught. You know. It's not taught in school. That's the kind of thing people used to learn during apprenticeships. When in this country, you would work for a journeyman as an apprentice. As today we call them interns. It just means you work for free. But have you ever been apprenticed? Have you ever been shown the way, taught on the job, OJT, on the job training, and you'll see uh, uh, somebody who's truly skilled, a master craftsman, they're not sure what to do, will stop and become mindful, take a break. Those who just plunge forward. Uh, <laughs> I remember working with a young man, and uh, he wanted to watch me change The oil in my car he'd never seen anybody change oil thought he could save a lot of money changing his own oil so i said yeah come on over i'm going to change the oil in my car today well 15 20 minutes we were done and this fellow looks at me and he says is that it i said well yeah he said well that's amazing i said what's so amazing about it he said well how easy that was so i said well yeah, it is pretty easy. You just pull one bolt, let it drain, put the bolt back in, and top it off with fresh oil. I mean, change the filter. We'd need a special wrench for that, but pretty straightforward, no big deal, right? He said, all all I know, this friend of mine says to me, is every time I saw my father try to do something like this, there'd be screaming and shouting and he would throw wrenches and he would break things and inevitably make it worse. Right. And I said, I can relate. I used to do that too. That's the why. That's what I saw in my family. That's what my father would do. Nothing ever got accomplished without a lot of yelling and throwing stuff and cursing. And I said, but you don't have to do that. You can just Use mindfulness in a very practical way as well. Not just to know yourself, but to know the car. Or to know which of these great job offers that are pending before you is in your best entrance. Uh, anytime you want to make a, a really clear analysis of something, you can go beyond the judgment of absolutes, everything or nothing. The need to control and the desire to be approved of and get a much more objective sense of what's right for you. When you meditate, when you relax, when you detach, take a step back and see the bigger picture, the gestalt, the whole enchilada. Let's see, uh, also... Let's check... Phones. I don't have anybody on the phone, so I mean, I have a bunch of people on the phone here. Thank you, but nobody has uh, got their hand raised. So let me continue with the um, with the Q and A here. We've got Dorena Stern in Tribuco Canyon. Hello, Darina. She says, "Great to hear you live on this lovely day. Happy Father's Day to my greatest teacher." Well, sweet. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And Patricia Vega in Los Angeles says, Aloha, Michael. Aloha, Doreen. Great show. Just want to ask you if mathematics was an absolute truth. Thank you, Patricia. Um, Well, I'd have to think about that for a minute. I think I think that I think that mathematics is not absolute, although it usually seems to be, because mathematics is a quantification or a numbering of form. I don't know of any application for mathematics in a spiritual plane. I don't know how to add or subtract or multiply or divide, much less geometry or trigonometry in a spiritual sense. And the wisdom says the only absolutes are spiritual. The fact that something can be weighed and measured and given a quantitative Uh, as well as qualitative a quantitative numerical value does not make it absolutely true because the relative truth still comes in the judging of it as good or bad or right or wrong and uh, there are some things math can't do um this is an excellent question because I'm not really that prepared to answer it it's not one I'm used to hearing that's why I like it but certainly you would agree Patricia that dividing by zero not only does not provide an absolute truth but is impossible by its very nature you cannot divide any number by zero Uh, and yet you can't do math without the zero. You have to have. This is why, you know, we needed those Arabic numerals. The Roman numeral had no zero, and so you couldn't do math with Roman numerals. So the the null set, the empty set, the zero, the nothing is essential, even though it's nothing. <laughs> it's essential. And yet, it's limited in its use. If you can't divide by zero, there is no rational answer to it. I'm sure there are other examples of that. And again, thank you. What an excellent, wonderful question. I think it demonstrates our bias that we wish things in the material world could be reduced to science and always understood. But There are grand contradictions in science. In fact, there's two rather separate, very separate um, approaches to physics that have yet to be resolved. And um, you and I have talked about them, in fact, in, uh, I think, the Thursday night video conference we talked about this, and maybe in the past here on the Ageless wisdom, mystery school. Also, the, um, the 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 two giant fields of physics would be Einstein's general theory of relativity, the relative nature of things, and quantum mechanics or quantum physics, which is the study of tiny little subatomic particles and the laws the laws of physics or the rules of how material objects behave in a material world are very different for these two perspectives, for big objects moving at relatively slow speeds. We have Einstein's relativity, Newton's laws of motion, and, um, Yet for quantum physics, we have another entirely irreconcilable set of rules and principles with no middle ground. Those two don't really meet. And it's complex enough that most people don't know about it. They don't know that we have two schools of physics, both demonstrably true, The quantum would be for the subatomic particles moving at very high rates of speed, and as I said, Newton's relativity, or Einstein's relativity, rather, larger objects moving at slower speeds, there's no middle ground, unless or until we get to these rather new uh, theories, so-called string theory, the idea of at a sub-sub-sub-sub-subatomic level, there are these little vibrating rubber bands, uh, the, these oscillating threads that bring particles into existence. And that sounds so way out and so far out that it really takes a lot of study to begin to understand how that could reconcile these two groups of physics. So that, I think, would be another example. That is trying to divide by zero. I'm sure there are others. I'm just not that strong at math. So the basic rule of thumb is that all truth in the material world is relative. It's always a matter of degree. Like you could divide any number by any number, whoops, except zero, right? And um, I'm sure in trigonometry and geometry and calculus, statistics, there are similar rules I've just forgotten about or maybe never been exposed to. The only absolutes, capital A absolute truth, then have to be um, in the substantial realm, the spiritual realm. So that God is one, for example, that that uh, the Creator can create and manifest without being affected, diminished, or subdivided in any way, would be another truth. Uh, God is love. Would be an absolute truth, um, but thanks for the question. My goodness, caught me totally off, <laughs> Taught, caught me totally off guard with that one, Patricia. Uh, let's see, Diane in Albuquerque. Hi, Diane. She says, "Happy Father's Day. Great to be with you today. Thanks for all you do for us. Do you think after practicing for years?" that it's possible to be awake and alert to what is around you and in a meditative state at the same time oh yes 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 the question is how long can we hold it but there are waking meditations and walking meditations i have a do the dishes meditation uh <laughs> Which I highly recommend. That makes washing the dishes go a whole lot faster and make it much more enjoyable. Anytime you focus your attention on one thing with a minimal amount of distraction, uh, that's mindfulness. You know, for your attention to rest gently upon a particular idea without being distracted, it requires profound fearlessness uh, 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 almost complete absence of anxiety or, or worry or apprehension because that's what pulls us to another thought even when our thinking is not applied as in writing an essay or balancing a checkbook or sketching out some sort of drawing uh when we apply the mind we expect it to be busy and thinking the funny thing is when you put all that down uh, put your feet up and sit back the mind doesn't stop it just switches gears from whatever it was applied to to something called stream of consciousness where it's continually distracted mindfulness or equanimity is the balance of detaching taking one step back and watching the mind go through that you know not attaching grabbing onto or clutching these thoughts or believing that that's who you are this thought stream or this train of thought Both of those phrases are good phrases or good visuals, right? The thought stream, as in a stream of consciousness, or a train of thoughts, one car after another after another. I read a book years ago called Concentration by, well, the author was a man named Ernest Wood, or Woods. Ernest Woods is a theosophist. And in this book, Concentration, he talks about the four roads of thought. That when your thinking is not applied, when you just kick back and relax and let go of the mind, you still have this stream of consciousness. And the more stressed and the more stimulated we are, the more nervous and apprehensive we may be, the more fearful the more of these thoughts are demanding and competing for our attention. And they come at us with greater speed, greater rapidity, like a machine gun. Bat, 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 bat. Right? One thought after another. So you can scarcely consider anything before leaping to a whole new set of thoughts. Well, the idea of letting go of that altogether and looking at Ernest Wood would say, looking at the connection of this car to the next car in the train of thoughts. This thought leading to that thought. He says there's only four roads, four possible ways that this thought can spontaneously be linked to the next thought. If you guys are interested in this, I could I could do a workshop just on the four roads of thought, the four possible ways that any thought can be linked, one of these four, that any thought can be linked to the thought that follows when your thinking is not applied to a particular task. All right? To sit back and watch that, to watch yourself think without judgment, can be absolutely fascinating. That's the challenge, to detach and to watch your thought processes. And you can do the same thing with your emotions. And you can do the same thing by
1: reviewing your
0: behavior in a certain situation. Go over it from a detached and mindful place. Walk all the way around the thought. You make better decisions. in in barring that when we're not sure what to do train yourself not to do anything until you do know what to do and when you're not sure what to say train yourself to say nothing until you do know what to say imagine the grief that'll save us if even as beginning students of mindfulness we learn to shut up when we're confused, <laughs> instead of taking an action or blurting out some sentence or two that makes things worse, it gets us in trouble, okay that comes with maturity, but you can accelerate the process by saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's something I want. I want to work on being more mindful, so until I know what to say or do, I don't say or do anything." that could make things worse, right? And just be interested in yourself. It takes a little bit of practice, but one thought at a time. Watch the thought go by, and don't judge it this time. Don't jump on board and allow that thought to carry you. Well, who's in charge here? You are the thought. Well, for the vast majority of our neighbors, their thoughts are running the show. They... They do what they think or even more fundamentally do what they feel and then think about it afterwards. This is called emotional polarization. My behavior was step two instead of step three. I did it because I felt like it, and then I thought about it. Oops <laughs> a little too late. It should be we should be mentally polarized so that our thoughts Then go to pick up an emotional affect, and then get expressed as speech or some other form of behavior. Mental, emotional, physical. That's the formula for building form. That's the order, right? You got to have all three, and you got to do it in that order. Mental, an idea, an energy picks up a force, a drive, a motive, a push from the emotional nature, and then you speak or act that out into the world. Most people's behavior is impulsive and reflexive. It comes from, I felt like it, and then after emotion leads to behavior, then they begin to think about what they did and reverse engineer it. It's called rationalization. Okay. It's a funny word for it because it's not really very rational. You've already behaved. Ration- <laughs> Rationalizing is deciding why you did it after you did it. See? So it's lower brain function, pretty much reflex, impulse, reactive, reactionary kinds of, of behavior. So... That's another another way of talking about it. So can you be awake and alert to what's around you and in a meditative state at the same time? Yeah, just focus on one thing at a time. Um, A walking meditation, for example, is when you think of nothing but walking and consider any other thought a distraction. But as soon as you realize you're thinking of something other than walking, you let it go and put your attention back on. My left heel is touching the ground, I'm rolling forward onto my toes, and I'm pushing off with the toe of that foot as the heel of the other foot touches the ground. And then you become aware of the swing of the leg and the swing of the arm and the balance and this gestalt starts to happen and as long as you are focused on the walking, whatever is the experience of the walking, that's a meditation. If your attention is on one whole thing at a time or even one little part at a time, Um, losing mindfulness would then be I'm walking, but I'm really thinking of 15 different things. Okay, My attention is jumping all over the place. Thank you, Diane. Thank you for that. And I'll check the phones one more time to see if any of our callers have questions or comments. and They do not appear to, so let's do a little visualization exercise, and I'll let you go. I'd like you to get comfortable and relaxed. Prop up some pillows and Again, the idea is to sit straight but not rigid because we want to relax. So think of yourself as sitting straight but balanced. And take a nice, slow, deep breath through the nose, inhaling, fill your lungs, hold as you peak, and then exhale slowly through the nose or the mouth. Slowly beyond where you'd normally stop, and then take a second. Slow, deep breath, inhaling through the nose, pulling in strength, hold as you peak, and then exhale slowly, as slowly as you can. Each breath should be a little slower. And do this three, four, maybe five times. Slowing down each time taking a little bit longer to inhale Ah, and a little longer to enjoy the sigh of relief as you exhale and it's on the exhale side that you really feel the muscles beginning to relax and unwind and you allow your breathing then to find its natural rhythm It's natural cadence. And turn all that breathing over to autopilot. And then put your attention on the bottom of your nose. As if you existed as a little spark of awareness, either on the tip of your nose, or I move down a little to that ridge line of cartilage between the nostrils and the bottom of the nose and I imagine myself as a little spark of awareness on that ridge line of cartilage between the nostrils and my job as this singular point of awareness is to simply monitor the in-breath and the out-breath as the body breathes itself. Normally, when you practice an exercise like this, you'll not have a narrator like me interrupting you. And in a moment, I'll slow my speech and allow you to do this without narrative And then tomorrow and the next day and the day after that as you practice this brief little exercise you can do it without the narrative. And simply watch your breath. This is not unlike watching someone sleep. And it's a different person, that's not you. And in time, an exercise like this will create a similar feeling. If every time you're distracted, you release it, just drop it as soon as you're aware of the distraction and gently return to watching your breath. You will very soon begin to experience your body breathing in a much more objective and detached way, almost as if you were watching someone else breathe. In your mind's eye, your ability to imagine. You could walk all around this body breathing as if you were watching someone sleep from the head of the bed, from the foot of the bed, from directly above the bed, as if you were floating or from either side of the bed. but it's really not somebody else's body you're watching breathe, it just seems like it it's actually your body breathing itself all by itself it does not need you to be consciously aware to breathe or to beat the heart, to regulate blood pressure and body temperature, to digest food, to repair and replace cells, to heal the body of dis ease. This is all done automatically, autonomically to free your conscious awareness to simply observe or to go off in another direction you could go read a book or watch TV or stare out the window or watch the World Cup or go play a musical instrument or engage yourself but once a day if you just set aside 10 minutes or so to do nothing but watch your body breathe itself wonderful benefits will begin to accrue benefits of mindfulness of equanimity a balanced view between spirit and matter between your own oversoul and its extension into the world of form. And instead of it being an either-or, you stand a leg in both worlds and mindfully realize this is an and. I am a spiritual being and... I live in a world of form the part of me that lives in form is breathing I can watch it right now breathe all by itself and yet there's another part of me that lives outside of form that is watching independent of my form nature and like so many things we learn to do habitually first time you get on a bike or even learn to walk as a child you have to pay attention but soon you turn that over to autopilot you don't have to think about walking to walk you don't have to Think about what's involved in rising up on the balls of your feet, tipping your center of gravity forward and breaking into a trot, a jog, or a full run. Same thing with a bicycle or driving a car. You paid so much attention the first time you got in a car And then it became automatic and autopilot. There are many things that are just fine if we allow them to be done automatically, autonomically. But there's also benefit in going back and becoming aware of things as simple as the breath. and just watch the breath, considering that any thought or any feeling about anything other than I am breathing in and out. I pause as I inhale. I pause upon completion of the exhale, round and round, expansion, contraction, the in-breath, the out-breath, and you just watch it without judgment. With beginner's mind, and you awaken, you see more. You understand more and appreciate more it's as if our perspective is elevated we now see to the farther horizon we see more inclusively we see harmony where previously we had seen mostly maybe exclusively discord We see connection and opportunity, or others may see only mistakes, errors, failure, and chaos. We learn lessons while others simply put out the fires. You get the bigger picture. As you relax and become mindful you become more loving and more loving is more understanding which vanquishes fear which is always born of what you do not understand for all fear is fear of the unknown and its antidote is to know and understand in our past human beings have attempted to conquer evil with good believing that good must kill evil as we become more mindful we understand that love and fear as a new and improved model for good over evil creates an entirely new approach for love has no desire to kill evil or to conquer Or eradicate evil. The way good wants to conquer evil, love sees that evil merely as fear. And wants to redeem it, to save it. To take what's good about it and lift it up. Leaving what is not good in the shadows. The paradigm of love vanquishing fear as redemptive or as good over evil tends to be seen as destructive. A classic archetype in the West is St. George slaying the dragon, good conquering, killing evil. But love doesn't kill fear. It embraces it. It loves it. It educates and nourishes fear. Love your enemy means take their fear away. Stop frightening them. Comfort them. And this is also learning. And this is also healing. This is growth. And this is evolution. And this is the stairway to heaven. This is Jacob's ladder that good conquering evil so much as love redeeming and saving fear leaving behind that which has been corrupted and bringing forward lifting up that which can learn and understand and grow and heal and get better and better and better be mindful of this Be mindful of your tendency to judge everything as good or evil, as right or wrong. Be aware of the ego's fascination with controlling the stimulus, when in fact we can control our perspective and our responses. You can't control the weather, but you can dress for it. Consider the way mindfulness can set you free from the constant petitioning of others for approval and acceptance. And won't you love me? Won't you let me be on your side? Can I come to your party? Will you help me to feel safe? Because without you, I don't feel safe. I know so little of myself. I need your approval. This is what the ego does. It judges, it controls, and it seeks approval over and over again. Judging and controlling. And won't you please love me? Judging, controlling. Won't you please spend some time with me? Know the truth of who you are mindfully with an exercise of simply watching your breath. Watch yourself breathe. Consider any other thought or feeling a distraction and awareness will dawn upon you as surely as the earth revolves into the sun every morning. And you'll see the bigger picture. You'll understand enough of yourself that you can give up most of the judgment. You can give up trying to control other people. You can give up the constant petitioning, the need to be accepted by others in favor of humbleness, in favor of the humility that dissolves the self into the one the one life the one thing the all that is and welcome home now just watch yourself breathe for a moment almost as if it were someone else's body Just notice, as you would the waves at the shoreline of the ocean, you could sit there for the longest time in a nice beach chair and just be fascinated by the waves rolling in and draining down the beach back into the ocean. Watch your breath for just a few moments with a similar fascination. Consider any other thought of distraction. Don't fight it. Simply let it go and bring your attention gently back to watching the breathing. It's a lot like training a little puppy dog to sit and stay as you walk away. The puppy wants to be with you. It wants more than anything to follow you. But lovingly, with affection, with persistence, with dedication and discipline, you say, no, sit, stay, stay. Good boy. Train the mind in a similar way. Don't get angry at your mind. Don't yell at it. Don't curse it. Don't threaten it. Be loving and gentle. Train with affection and kindness. Acknowledgement and affirmation. And in any event, bring the calm, peaceful, and tranquil feelings that have overpowered in just the last few minutes all the negativities, the worries, the doubts, the nervousness, the anxiety, and the anticipation of the day. But this powerful peace and tranquility come with you to the waking state as you reorient yourself to the sound of my voice remembering the room you're in and what you'll see in a moment when you open your eyes and now deliberately consciously one big slow deep breath inhaling hold as you peek sense the fullness and exhale slowly Ah, now, eyes open, wide awake, back in the room, feeling fine, all rested and refreshed, and more awake than you've been all day, don't you see? More awake, more alert. And that translates to smarter and more sensitive and wiser and more loving and All kinds of benefits accrue from that. Hey, thanks. Those of you on the telephone, you got a bunch of people that called. And those of you who are on the web, I have a counter. I don't see your names or your numbers, but I know you're there. And I appreciate it. appreciate you coming in live. Um, And, of course, we are available by podcast. I have an instant replay that you can get to at theagelesswisdom.com. That's one of two sister websites, the W's dot Click on the home page to go inside and then on web teleconference. And as soon as we're done here, 30 seconds later, it's queued up and ready for replay. And then two days later, the podcast comes out, and the podcast is compressed. It's a little bit louder. We filter some of the telephone noise. We put a little music on it. From the point of view of fidelity, the podcast is the better feed. But this raw recording... Will be available immediately in moments as soon as I say goodbye you can go and listen to that So both of those feeds are available want to remind you about the Thursday night video conference that's moving one hour from 6.30 p.m. Thursday evening pacific time to 7.30 pacific time effective this Thursday check the newsletter for more information or just go to Zorap dot com, Z O R A P dot com, to register, to install a little plug in, a very small browser plug in, and then um Thursday night you go to Zorap.com slash M Benner. And that's all in the newsletter. Again, starting this week, it'll be later, seven thirty Pacific, ten thirty Eastern Time, the Thursday night video conference. And uh, remember also the premium audio program. If you're not getting these, you're really missing out. This is my business partner for 35 years and then some, Steve Snyder and myself together. Studio quality audio programs that are available as podcasts for just 99 cents each. You can buy individual programs for 99 cents. You can subscribe for 3.96 a month. I'm going to give you a little clue. The individual price of these programs is going to go up soon, but the subscription price will remain 99 cents a week. So that's a pretty good deal. Right now, you can get individual programs for 99, but not much longer. So for less than $4, you know, about the amount of one Starbucks coffee you can get a month, four, sometimes five, depending on how many. Wednesdays or any given month of compelling conversation on personal and spiritual development featuring Steve and myself and also guided imagery too. Okay, that's at focusedpassion.com remember the E-D, the W's dot focusedpassion For a free account, just leave your uh, email and your first name and you can get six sample programs and a free account and then that uh, Sign up later if you'd like, subscribe to the to the series. Okay. Happy Father's Day and as always be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Bowie.